We continue our series in the book of Exodus and turn to the book of Exodus at chapter 19. Chapter 19, we have met Israel meeting with the Lord after three months or so of wilderness wandering after the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. People of God is led as on eagle's wings, says the Bible, to the mount called Mount Sinai. There they are in the Sinai Peninsula to the east of the Mediterranean and not very far from the land of promise, but they have lessons to learn here, and it will take many years, even 40 years, for them to learn them. But here at this meeting of God, this very special meeting, which God had promised they would have when they were led out of the, uh, the bondage of Egypt, here they're given this amazing constitution of themselves as the people of God. They're established as the Old Testament people of God's good pleasure. They were promised this in Abraham, and now 430 years after, this is coming to pass. They will be given laws. They will be giving the law for the tabernacle, the law for service, the law for a theocracy, a special national kingdom reserved for Israel, the Old Testament. But here, we continue at this awesome meeting of God, with Israel, Exodus 19, verse 10, to the end of the chapter. Let's read this word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for all the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So mountain, uh, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. 
Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And then afterward, the familiar chapter, which we read even, the giving of the Ten Commandments, at least that's how that begins, chapter 20. But Here you have this meeting of God in the Mount, beloved, this meeting of God of which we will speak and even stammer a few words. It's all we can do about this awesome revelation of the Holy God. In fact, that's what this is all about here. God is revealing himself as the holy God, holy in his salvation, holy in his judgments, holy in all his ways and works and words. And he would teach the people that he is holy and they are not. And so this will be what we focus on here at this time. want to remind you, though, that there is this Lesson for us to be sure here of the holiness of God and of our not being holy. But there's also a lesson that we can only really understand in light of another passage to which we'll refer in the second point of our sermon. That's a New Testament passage which speaks of the contrast between Israel, who came to this mount, and to the New Testament people who come to another mountain, even Mount Zion, and that would be to Christ. And so, in the hopes of getting to the second point and to Christ, we want to consider this meeting of God in the mount and the call to be consecrated, that it is. Moses is told to consecrate the people by certain ablutions and certain requirements to show the holiness of God and their own unholiness and necessity of cleansing. But we want to consider this, first of all, the the holy God that's revealed here, and the holy people, or maybe not so. So we put in our outlines a a holiness with a question mark after that. But then secondly, that there's another mount we want to hasten to, and then ask the question, is there another people that comes to this other mountain that the Bible speaks of in great detail? Then finally, the response. Trembling, to be sure, they are here And I want to bring the word of God to you today. You ought to be trembling and shaking, but never without peace and never without the pursuit of godliness, which God is requiring here and blessing us as he calls us to be holy as he is holy. The holy God is revealed here. The holiness of God is the great theme of the revelation of God. It might be the outstanding attribute that the Bible speaks of when it speaks of God. Israel has to learn this. Isaiah, the prophet, hundreds of years later would have to learn this. And what may have been at the very beginning of his ministry in Isaiah 6, when he's given this vision of the throne room of heaven, 
and the angels flying about with their wings and with this alacrity and swiftness of servants of God in purity. But they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The triune God, holy, 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 holy Father, holy Son, holy, holy Spirit is revealed in the word of God. In all creation, to be sure, the heavens declare the glory of God. All earth shows his glory, his greatness, but also especially in the word of God that we know in the Bible, this infallible word, speaking infallibly, front and center, the message of the holy God. Do you know that holy God? I'm surprised if you would quickly say yes, because actually the the proper response of a people that knows the holiness of God is yes and not really. Because this holiness of God is is a truth, a concept, an idea, a veracity, a, a revelation of the reality of the God who's not like us. As we say in our catechism classes here where we teach God and we teach theology here, that this God is transcendent and holiness of God meets that. And it's no, it's no uh, coincidence merely and no chance that God is meeting with Moses on the mount and with the people on a mountain. Everywhere the Bible uh, points us to the mountains to point us to some God who's above us, who's higher than we are. In fact, nothing is so accurate here, of course, because a mountain in Mount Sinai, which may be some thousands of feet, and a Mount Everest, which is 29 plus thousand feet, they cannot even approximate the otherness of God. And so the Bible, even grasping at words, we say reverently, seeking to speak to us of the greatness of God, speaks of God most high, and the, the holiest of of holies is this God, and he's this holy other, as one theologian said, who in his theology was right at that point. And we need to be right at this point. God is not like us. He's not like any creature. He's not like any creature which has a beginning. He doesn't have a beginning. He's the forever God. Do you know that, children? Do you ever think about forever? That's hard to think of when you're little. I tell you, it gets harder when you're older. Because forever is this thing that's just out of our realm. We have a beginning, and we have a very short life. And all our days are numbered by God, and they're nothing compared to eternity. And God has no beginning and no ending. And and therefore, all of the vagaries of time and the limitations of time are not known to him, even though he knows those limitations in the things he makes. He's this God, wholly outside of the realm of of the universe. He's not really, you you should know this, a creature of the universe. He doesn't live somewhere as if he's there, he occupies this space and no other. Oh, even though the Bible says, yes, there's a place called heaven, that's a real place, and yet it's a condescension of God to be in that created place where angels are, and well, we, we will go. He's even beyond that. And beyond the universe means he's beyond being a creature. 
He's not a creature. He's not a dependent thing. That's what creatures are. Oh, that the world would get this in their heads. We're dependent. We need God. This being called God for every breath that we breathe. And nothing is natural. Life is a gift of God. And so is death. That is, it's a judgment of God, the wages of sin. But this God... And he's revealed here as this God of eternity, this God of infinitude, this God of perfection and goodness and greatness and light, and, and in him is no darkness dwelling at all, and there's no change about this God. He's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's one of the names of God, after all. Moses is telling the people the words of the Lord, after all, that's Jehovah, the I am that I am. He's the God who is this great God and simply is, and there is no becoming in him and no no subtraction from him. Nobody can add to him. Even when it says that we are to magnify the Lord, to increase him in his greatness and in the world's perception of the greatness of God, it's not to add to God. It's simply a way that God has of saying, get the word out. I'm God and there is no other. That's Isaiah's other way of describing the holiness of God. There is God and he's most high. And that means there's no other God like him. No other God. So he's holy, but one of the ways he shows that he's so different than we are is to be involved in this creation. Holiness doesn't mean like the deists said of long ago and even today, that God might have created things, but now he steps back and he's not involved. That would be beneath God. Oh, he's holy. And he's so holy that he continues to be involved in this creation, to provide for it by the word of his power, to be this God who's above it and yet in the middle of it, so he's upholding us so that in him we live and move and have our being and even Worldly philosophers somehow understand this concept, this amazing involvement, not just of a first principle, if they'd only know, but of this personal God, who has a personal interest in all things, because, you see, he's the God of a decree, and it is creating all things, it is planning all things. He had a plan that everything created would work out so that he would get all the glory. He's wise after all, and wisdom is simply God dedicating everything to himself that everything might serve his plan, good and evil. Oh, yes, the king's heart, even a wicked king's heart, is in the hand of the Lord. He turneth it as the rivers of water, whatever way he wants it, but so that all these things serve his praise and his plan. Oh, what a marvel to understand and how peaceful gives us to be very comforted by the monarch of monarchs, God, the king of kings. He's in control. This is what's revealed on the mount here. For our application today, for tomorrow, and for the next day, for every day, for raising a family, for knowing that this holy God is, yes, a God of holy judgment, but he's a God of holy love. 
You realize that? If it were not so, that God was not a God of holy love, we'd be lost. If he were a God who loved us like lovers love us and leave us, he would love us and leave us. And we'd have to be there in the meadow saying, he loves me, he loves me not. And wondering today if he really loves me because things haven't gone so well at the office this past week and this day. And my marriage isn't going so well. And where is the marriage that I thought he would lead me to? And all the reasons we have, we think, for suspecting that God is not love. God abolishes those and we ought to be ashamed of those false images of the love of God because you know how much he loves you, beloved. He loves you in Jesus. And somehow there's this holy God who's revealed to this people in Jesus Christ in this Old Testament sort of way on a mountain that very few evangelicals dare to approach in their preaching. But so much does he reveal Jesus because, after all, read the passage. Israel receives this revelation and doesn't die. They live. After all, they're brought to the mount on eagle's wings, we've heard about in the beginning of Exodus 19, with the care of an eagle, an eagle-eyed God, an eagle-taloned God, an eagle-caring God for its young. The eagle God, the all-wise God and loving God in Jesus. That's our God. The holy God. And he is holy and loving together at this time in Israel to call them to consecration. There's no other nation that's being called. They're called out of Egypt, not out of China, not out of America, not out of whatever. They're called out of Egypt, and they're called Israel and Jacob, the sons of Jacob, now the prince of God, Israel, to be his. We read that in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You're mine. And some hundreds of years later to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a people and I'm going to bless you. Genesis 12 through 17. Just read it. There's the history of, of the people of God in its embryonic form. The history of Father Abraham and his children, Isaac and Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, brought into captivity, now out, and now becoming this people on earth that will look like the people of God. This nation whose victories will be victories for God's sake, whose defeats will be because they transgressed the commandments of God. The promise to them is sure as sure as God is, not conditioned upon their obedience even. He's such a God. So they're learning something here of this God. And they will be consecrated. God speaks through Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, two days. Let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. Okay, there's three or two and a half days, whatever, of, of cleansing. 
This was a sign of holiness. It would be Levitical holiness. The priests would have to wash the things that they served with and themselves, and the people would have to wash, and it would have to be the washing of a woman after menstruation and so on. But there's these ways that it was seen that God is holy, and to approach him, you have to be holy. And it was a privilege then that there would be this symbolism of washing, because even you know, children, when your mom says, go take a bath, and then even checks your hands and your feet and everything else about you, uh, that's not going to clean you inside, is soap. No, biblical cleansing is inside of the heart and of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God by which we're sanctified. But this was symbolic, and it was a, a, a symbolism that was to reflect their dedication to God. That's the idea. If God is holy and dedicated to himself, our consecration to him is dedication to God. And there's two aspects of that. Even as God's holiness means he's above the creation, and also we, we need say, of course, above sin, so is ours. You know what holiness means for you? You are above this world. What? Here you are sitting in a pew, in clothes, with earthly things, doing this and that of the earth. And the reverend says, holiness is being above the earth. Well, that's biblical because it's being like God. In fact, the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 reminds us, if you're married, be the, as those who are not. If you're, you're doing this, be as those who aren't doing that. As, if you're excited about these things, be as those who are not because you have another place to live. It's called heaven and another being who is the center of your life, God, and another Savior than any Savior of this world, and other blessings besides all of the blessings of this life. You have spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's what holiness means. You understand that. You get it. And you're saying to yourself constantly, I need to get this. Because all the world does is get me down or get me sideways or drifting off from what needs to be dwelt on and that in which we need to be anchored. And sinless. We're to be sinless. That's what that means. Are you sinless? Fess up. Of course, no one would say that. Well, maybe some would. But that's what we're called to be. And this is a picture here. No man approaches the holy God because God will not behold sin and sinners except to punish them. You see, this whole idea here, this whole idea, the whole revelation here of the truth here is that there's this holy God and he's calling the people to be consecrated but the people realize the gap between God and them and his holiness and theirs is infinite and there is remaining sin and there's the problem we had at the breakfast table with the conversation with our wife and children and there's this attitude we had when we were working and, and there's this problem we have with the church and the minister and whoever else and we realize, man, we've blown it. Besides that, there's this inner monster. 
inclining us to be monstrous and to do anything to justify our monstrosities of ourselves. Anything. Lying, cheating, gossiping, posturing. I said it, thus saith Mitch. Put your name in. I ain't backing down. So Israel is showing here, when they tremble, they just aren't worthy, are they? And they'll show at this very mount that they are idolaters. They go after the golden calves. And they'll show, as they have shown, that they're just complaining and they don't trust in God and their delight is really not in the manna from heaven, which was still feeding them here, or in the water from the rock. They, they just wanted something else, maybe indoor plumbing to get this water to them quicker. And manna with sugar on it. Jesus sweetened up a bit. This is us, isn't it? Sweet Jesus. Made and presented to us for our palate. So it's palatable to us, to our, to our vision of Jesus. Yes, if, God, if I were God, I'd do this. And if I were God, I'd send a Savior to do this. And so often we say, I'd send a Savior to do this now because I'm impatient. Well, here, on and on we could go about this. The people, they're consecrated to God by promise. They're God's people. They're Abraham's people. Not the whole lot of them. There's a bunch of renegade reprobates here. You know that. There's a mixed multitude besides who just came along with the, the Israelites for the ride, as it were, because they, they saw that this Israel's God was challenging Pharaoh and promising a king like the other nations and even greater. But they're principally gods. That's the idea here. They are at the core. There's this elect remnant, this people that's truly Israel, that's being met with here and caused to shake in their boots here. So that God works repentance here and leads them as he will in the next 56 chapters. Because that's how many chapters are devoted to Mount Sinai in the Bible, 57 total. He'll be teaching them of the Christ, of another mount, even greater than this one. And that's our second point. There's this God who's holy and holy, and there's this people who's holy and unholy meeting with him. And it all is about Jesus and needs to be. You understand this, don't you, beloved? This book is a book of one word. There's only one word that God says, his son, by whom and for whom he made the worlds, Colossians 1. And that in all things he might have the preeminence in all things, in all, all words too, old covenant words, words of law, words of death, 
Words that cause the people to know they're dead men. Unless there is a redeemer, unless there is bloodshed, unless there's another mount. And so that we might visit the other mount, and I I can't dwell on this long enough uh, to do justice, but just an inkling. Let's let's turn, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. It's a very important chapter with regard to this event in the book of Exodus. Hebrews chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews, of course, is, is speaking of the main subject of Jesus, who's better than any other mediator, he's better than angels, he's better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than you, better than, than, than I am. But Hebrews 12, 18 reminds us of this very narrative, and the narrative is quoted even, but turns us to another mount. Let's hear that. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched Hebrews 12, 18, and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest at Sinai and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling but You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, and we should add, than that of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. And then the response, see that you do not, do not refuse him who speaks, and so on. Beloved, there's another mount. Call here the Mount Zion, a picture of the place of fellowship with God. Mount Zion, of course, would be where the temple would be built in the holy city when they would get to, they would get to the land of promise. Mount Zion would be the, where the offerings were and where God would dwell with the people and they'd see it and they'd know it when the offerings were received, especially that offering of the atonement once a year by the, the, whole, the high priest in the holy of holy places. There, you see, was pictured what God would actually do in time, dwell with his people through this mountain called Calvary, the death of the Son of God, and so that they would be led with this people even to heaven itself. Because when Jesus comes, he's the fulfillment of everything that God said and promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of the people of God, and through the prophets pictured, and through this land of typology and pictures, Israel would show what reality is all about. In picture language, here's the blood that's shed, here's the blood of the Son. Here's the high priest, and here's the mediator Moses going up between the people and God and God and the people so that they might be spared and receive the communication of God. But here's Jesus. We see Jesus made a little lower of the angels to be a prophet and priest and king, the great mediator who effects salvation 
and fulfills the promises of God. And so Hebrews 12 is simply describing the the magnitude of the blessing we have in the new covenant. The old covenant, of course, was simply superimposed or put down on top of the promise of God. It didn't disannul it, but it was there to teach the people just how great God is and how bad they were and to give them to look to this place and that would mean the place that God would choose where God's holy justice would be satisfied and where there would be mercy to beat the band. Mercy sounded forth from heaven's trumpet and mercy word. The call of peace, the pronouncement of love, Jesus, incarnate, walking the earth doing miracles, dying for our unholinesses, injustices, posturing, and warmongering. We've come to that mount. We've been brought to this other This reality, even as the first Adam was just, he was real, but only a type of him to come, Romans 5. Jesus is the real Adam, the real representative of the real human race that God will be God's people. So Jesus is, or the Mount Zion is a picture of uh, is pictured by Sinai. No, it's not. It's, it's a picture itself of the place where God comes in the greatest expression, the highest mountaintop expression of his love, his holiness. We come to that. You come to that? You come to that mountain, to that place where you know God, That's what Hebrews calls us to over and over again and reminds us of. See, the Hebrews were going back. They were going back to their old covenant and the mountain that shaked and quaked and the fire and everything else and the trembling. And they didn't realize, did those Hebrews who confessed Christ after a fashion, that they had it far better, even though they had to leave the things you see for the things that are not seen and leave the the things that might Uh, go for a, a nation that's seen as a great nation among the nations to another place called the Church of Jesus Christ, which is really not much in the world when you think of it, not the true Church of Christ. Wherever, in fact, there's a church that is much in the world that makes great hay down at City Hall and gets its chief selected and so on, not calling for no involvement in the, in the government, but wherever it happens that the church has great influence. History says, the Bible says, beware. The church has a spiritual way about it and its spiritual blessedness and spiritual power to save sinners far greater than getting a certain policy changed. Is God changing a certain heart and a certain people? in a certain church. You've come to this. What are you going to do with it? 
You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. No more Moses. You've come to his blood that's sprinkled on Calvary and now sprinkled on your conscience, your evil conscience in cleansing you so that you might approach God. This is true. Jesus is great. And now, beloved, you are children of God and you are bold to come to God, aren't you? Today, to confess your sins and say, Lord, have mercy upon me for Jesus' sake. And you say it with trembling because you know what you deserve and I know what I deserve. But you say it with a smile, I hope. For Jesus' sake, oh, forgive me again. Lord, I've blown it. I've messed up. I've been a mess up. But you are God who never messes up and you love to deal with mess-ups and to show the, the great magnitude of your, the freeness of your grace. Beloved, tremble and shake, but be glad. This is what you've come to because God has come to you. This is why you keep coming back because God keeps coming back to you. God, you see, does not renounce his holiness and his holy love. So go on in that. Beloved congregation of sovereign grace, may God be with you and be with us so that we love him all the more and keep on going to the mount on your knees, but then to go into this world to be God's happy and holy people. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us. Help us to see that you are God. And you've brought us to Mount Zion, the, the place that pictured Calvary and, and the wonderful establishment of peace on that cross where Jesus died for our sins and from which he was resurrected on the third day after he was in the grave. We are here praising you now, Father, and loving you because you love us so, and you are worthy, you are praiseworthy of all our attention, of our holiness, and that of our children and young people. You're worthy, Father, of a consecrated life. And what we need, even more than law, for this consecrated life is grace. Grant us your grace. Amen.